Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, fixing your mindset to turbocharge the zero trust journey. A lot of security has been premised on the idea of the network being really the operative control plane for security. The VA's big EHR program shows signs of progress. I would actually say the Columbus facility, which we brought on board a week or so ago, has gone quite well. I think we've had learnings that have come from our first implementation of main brand staff. And the VA CIO lays out his vision for data. When you interact with one of the VA systems, we know about you. We know, for instance, uh, if you're interacting with us on healthcare, that you might have uh, eligibility for certain benefits, that we look at you as the whole person. It's Monday, May 9th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, sponsored by Google Cloud. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Federal agencies have new guidance from the National Institute of Standards and Technology on supply chain risk management. One of the document's authors, John Boyens of NIST, calls it, quote, a comprehensive tool to fight threats like solar winds. Boyens says agencies that haven't started yet or haven't gotten very far on supply chain risk management can use the tool to start immediately. Five winners and 15 honorable mentions are recipients of the State Department's first-ever Data for Diplomacy Awards. The department's Enterprise Data Council says State created the program to, quote, support and accelerate the department's enterprise data strategy. The council chose the winners and honorable mentions for more than 40 entrants. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Voting's open now for the best bosses in federal IT. You can vote for the best bosses till May 20th. You can find a link to see the nominees and vote for them in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. One-year anniversary of President Biden's cyber executive orders coming Thursday. The president signed the EO May 12, 2021. Dan Prieto is head of cybersecurity strategy for Google Cloud Public Sector. He's former chief technology officer in the office of the CIO at the Defense Department and former director for cybersecurity policy on the National Security Council. Google Cloud sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. As we get to almost a year out from the EO, where do you think we are today in government as far as actually fulfilling both the letter of the EO and the spirit of it? Welcome. Thanks very much, Francis. Good to be with you again. We are in the early stages. I mean, if you think about this in terms of baseball, nine innings, you know, we're still in the first or second inning. And that's always the case whenever there is a uh, thrust, a push of new policy in government. The ink dries. I think the reporting on it is generally like, okay, everything's changed. But the reality is it always takes multiple years for federal departments and agencies to internalize uh, the new policy directives, um, to really have those color all of their activities. Um, and, and even still, basically a year past uh, the initial issuance of the executive order, you know, implementing guidance from uh, OMB only came out in January with uh, OMB memo uh, 2209, basically providing additional implementing and supporting guidance for the EO and then National Security Memo 8, which says it's not just federal civilian government that needs to follow the zero trust components of the EO, but it's also actually owners of national security systems. So it's early days still, uh, supporting guidance is still coming out. Uh, departments and agencies are still you know, 
getting their ducks in a row because as we discussed at the, the summit uh, earlier in the month, um, getting this right is not just about continuing to add tools, but it's about orchestrating and coordinating those tools to drive certain outcomes. Yeah, the last time we were together was at that Zero Trust Summit, Dan, and that video is available at fedscoop.com. My takeaway from our conversation, yours and mine, and from the other conversations there was everybody's at least discussing the fact that they, number one, Zero Trust is a journey, and number two, they're all on it. And subsequent to that conversation, Every CIO, every CISO, et cetera, that I've spoken to has said, yeah, we started that before the executive order. Does that mean that the place that we're in today, wherever that place may be, are we on track? Are we behind? Or does it really matter the timing of it? Does that matter as much as the fact that agencies really have moved out? I think it's partially true that folks had started this ahead of time uh, in that the things that the executive order requires around zero trust and the NIST 800-207 guidance. It, it all, all the new policy and all the new guidance implicates components and ingredients that every department and agency already had in place, right? I think the uplift on policy is that it wasn't just about having the shopping list and the ingredients, it was about putting it together the right way. And I think what you'll see if you look across the federal landscape is you will see a highly varied range of where people are on getting the recipe right, regardless of whether or not they have the ingredients in place. Um, and so I think it's hard to, to, to provide an average score for where the government's at because it's going to vary across every department and agency. And frankly, it's going to vary significantly within every department and agency. Um, because again, as you and I talked about, not only does the policy big bang take time to really take hold, when inside an organization, I think it's a fiction to think that there is a big bang by which they can make the entire enterprise, every user group, every application, every data set, be compliant with the zero trust sort of performance mandates. In reality, most organizations, they have applications or user groups that are maybe well on their way, but other parts of the organization might not be as well on their way. I mentioned that there's a lot of conversation around this. What's the best way for an organization to convert that talk into action? You know, I, I think a couple of things. I think really internalize the policy requirements, number one. Number two, really get a good inventory of the ingredients that can contribute to zero trust in your organization. Number three, get a real good sense of the range of projects you know, who are your leaders and your laggards within your organization, right? And then the third, fourth thing is, when you think about your zero trust strategy, um, and if you think about possibly bringing in new tools and capabilities, how do you bring those together with the stuff you already have and the stuff that's already in train, right? It's really getting a lay of the landscape of everything you have, the current state of everything you're doing, and figuring out how to bring that all together to create these zero trust outcomes we spoke about. At a more granular level, you know, I think the lessons we learned in Google when we implemented Zero Trust globally for ourselves, there are some things that seem simple on paper, but are actually really hard to do, right? The steps that we undertook were making sure that we basically have full inventories and have fully identified all of the devices in the enterprise. Second, 
securely identifying uh, and making sure we have inventories of all the users in the enterprise and have associated with all of those users what kinds of things they should be able to access uh, or not and what their roles determine what they should access or not. The third thing we did, and this again was a multi-year journey for us, was really remove any implicit trust that was granted by the network or where you were coming from on the network. And in fact, we eventually got to the point where we removed the need for a trusted network altogether. That piece that we went through is a really big change for government because a lot of security has been premised on the idea of the network being really the operative control plane for security. The, the fourth thing we did was look at the applications and workflows we had. And for us, a sort of web-enabled enterprise, we said, let's take those internal applications and workflows and let's actually you know, rebuild them, redesign them so that they're actually potentially external facing, right? And then after we did all of those things, we said, look, let's implement access controls, right? Based on all the things we know, what do we trust about you and your device? How do we grant access to applications and data? And how do we ensure that all that access is encrypted and, sec and secure? Um, so those are the steps we went through. But again, they seem simple on paper, but they're complicated in reality. Another thing that organizations can do is follow some of the guidance out of the Department of Homeland Security, CISA. They have a maturity model um, for where you are on this journey that evaluates each organization and you can sort of self-evaluate. Where are you as regards identity, device, network, applications, and data? There's also a maturity model in the DOD DISA guidance for zero trust. So there is no shortage of ways to get started. Uh, I think, again, progress will come in fits and starts in each of those buckets, though. When I think about the analysis you just provided, and I read the CISA documentation, the CISA material that you just suggested, this is totally an art, not a science, right? There's not a way to make a list and say, we're going to do this and do this and do this the way that a lot of people, quite frankly, have done security and government for a long time, right? It is certainly not akin to the checklist notion that there's this black and white view as to whether you're compliant or not, right? And that is, you know, an overarching theme and tendency in security historically. It is also more art than science in that, as we discussed at the summit, every organization is different because their starting points are different. Their use cases might be different. Their user populations or data sets might be different. And in fact, that need for flexibility, which makes it as much art as science, or if not more art than science, the whole point of the NIST 800-207 was to build into the guidance flexibility. There are multiple ways to achieve the same outcomes. There are different architecture patterns. The ingredients you use might be different than the specific ingredients that another organization used because the ingredients you use will be determined by what tools and capabilities on the cyber side you had in place already, right? Where you're strong, um, where you're weak, what tools, what vendors you have in place, those starting conditions all, all differ. So there is no one way to do everything, but we do know zero trust outcomes when we see them. There is a way to achieve the outcomes. If we get together a year from now or two years from now on the second and third anniversary of the EO, and I hope we do, by the way, um, what, where should we be at that point, do you think? 
what progress should happen between now and May of 23 and May of 24 and so on? I think every department and agency, as the years progress, should have lighthouse programs that they know are the best of what they do. And again, the lighthouse program will depend. If you're a student loan agency, it'll be different than if you're a federal law enforcement agency. But everyone should know what their lighthouse program is, where it is on its progress path, and what benefits that lighthouse program provides to the mission. And as that lighthouse program makes progress, it should provide an example and also build muscle memory to start operationalizing, you know, and basically pivoting off that success to bring zero trust to other applications and workloads around the organization. I think as well, every federal agency and department should know where they're really their biggest weak spots are. And this comes in trying to map some of these efforts uh, against some of the things they've done historically on high value assets, basically asking themselves what's mission critical um, uh, and where do we have the biggest vulnerability? So basically mapping these lighthouse programs and getting success and momentum uh, while at the same time knowing the areas where you have the, the weakest spot is really, to be frank, a state of each of these departments and agencies where they are very self-aware about where they are, where they're going, and what they want to prioritize. Dan, great conversation as always. Terrific to talk to you. Thanks for joining me today. Terrific. Thanks so much, Francis. You can read more about what Dan and I discussed in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming tomorrow, building a back-to-the-office strategy. The Chief Human Capital Officer at the Commerce Department, Jessica Palatka, is on tomorrow's show. Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The digital transformation vision at the Department of Veterans Affairs calls for, quote, getting back to basics. The VA is looking to leverage success stories from the pandemic response for the future. Kurt Delbene is Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Kurt, welcome. Thanks very much for joining me today. You're marking your about 100 days in office. Uh, what do you see? What have you learned over that 100 days? And how are you teeing up what you learned to push forward. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I, I very much appreciate the time to talk about um, what's really exciting work that's going on in the VA. I think you said it right in the fact that uh, over the since the pandemic started, the VA has done a really great job and in, in OIT has in responding and keeping the VA productive and um, going really head on in our mission to serve veterans, their uh, caregivers and family. So feel very good about that. Um, I came in and did a lot of listening and understanding how the VA does their great work, how OIT does, what does IT look like in the federal government? And as you know, I spent most of my career uh, in um, the private sector leading large teams at Microsoft. I led the Microsoft Office organization, development organization, and also our internal systems and operations uh, as well. And really just trying to find the, the correlations, places where the VA is uh, unique and places where there are things that we can learn from the commercial space. And that caused us to get to bring the team together, understanding what the mission and the vision should be for the organization and how we should structure ourselves to accomplish that mission. And really settled around um, four things that are really, I think, key and that form our vision. And the first one, it's a little recursive, but it's to be vision-led. 
And that says that all of the work that we do needs to accrue to a, a, a core vision of what we're trying to deliver for care for veterans themselves and for the key stakeholders in the VA. Anchor on that vision, have a connected roadmap that says, what are we going to do to accomplish that vision? Um, what, how are we going to measure our success? What are the metrics of success going to be? And then how does that relate to the resources that are allocated? And we do that across the different portfolios that are in the VA. It's very well, I found it to be very well structured in terms of the areas of work, but we really need to, with all the people and the different forces on these different groups of people, you need to focus them and not lose track of where we're trying to head. So that was the first thing. The second is around operational excellence really getting great in terms of the process of engineering. And we, we are starting an effort called engineering excellence. You really kind of drive where are the key places we can up our game in terms of engineering. How do we um, change the, the approach? How do we uh, kind of, it's a recursive loop there. If you say, okay, we've gotten better. What are we doing next? And just driving, driving, driving to be great on an engineering excellence. It's about resource outs, uh, excellence and being focused in terms of where we put our dollars. And then the third thing is around excellence and security, because cybersecurity, that threat is always there, and it's really important for us to drive super hard on that one. Uh, the third area is around delightful end user experiences. Uh, you know, I think in the consumer world, veterans um, and also the internal users in the VA have an expectation of having an experience that feels like a consumer experience. And the tools that they use, we want to give everybody access to their their benefits in the VA through VA.gov and bring that together into a great user experience. We want our tools internally to be great as well. And then the final area is around the talent agenda and really supporting our folks internally, having great career paths, having a great on-ramp on into OIT to start your tech career, having off-ramps into the public sector and to other places in government as you, as you find new opportunities, and really codifying that and being great in that, that space. And along with that, we looked, took a look at the organizational structure. And we said, um, we actually think we can make it more effective. It was There were places where the organization was pretty deep. There will be multiple layers before you got to the senior leaders that were actually driving those portfolios we talked about. And so we streamlined things by removing a couple layers of, man, of leadership, giving those great people that, um, that uh, were leaders in that position other great opportunities to contribute to the organization. So there were no loss of of roles at all in, in this change, but it really flattened out the organization so that we had those senior leaders reporting directly to the primary deputy uh, assistant secretary. We got people talking more effectively left to right and, and the communication was much more streamlined and really kind of um, just optimizing that decision-making and that communication. So that's really, it's been a busy hundred days and that's what we've been, we've been working on. How, when you did that restructuring, how did you decide that you'll evaluate it at some point in the future and what point in the future might that be to determine whether you've achieved what you wanted to achieve with that restructuring? Or is it the type of restructuring, Kurt, that you expect you'll be able to see benefits pretty quickly to evaluate whether you got what you wanted? It's a great question. I think we're already seeing the benefits we're seeing people we're seeing an energy in those leaders that were a couple clicks down in the organization, um, really coming up and saying, wow, I'm now, I've got that seat at the table at the senior leadership. And by the way, I'm going to go to the, the person to my left and right and say, it, uh, hey, here's an issue we have to resolve. We have to resolve it quickly. And so I think we're already seeing that. Um, we're also taking the opportunity to 
look across the organization and see if there's a, a bit of alignment across those different peer organizations. Say, and we're seeing that kind of communication going on. You know, somebody talks to another and says, you know, that team would be better if it was aligned closer to this other team. And so really as much as it, it's, it's about the new structure, it's also about enabling those senior leaders to feel responsible that they're driving their part of the, of, of the organization. Um, on the agenda that you just laid out, the third piece, delightful end user experience. I love that word delightful because it's a great word picture that indicates what you want the veteran and, and the veteran's family to experience. But you talked about the fact that the veteran expects the same experience with you that he expects or she expects when they deal with private sector organizations. Right. How, how do you want to leverage the experience that you had at Microsoft to be able to say firsthand this is what somebody gets when they deal with the private sector company. And so this is what they should get when they deal with the VA. Well, it's interesting. There's uh, the, we've been doing some work on VA.gov and one of the, some of the early reviews I did with that team uh, were with that team. And uh, we've got a great team under Charles Worthington, our CTO, that's really been doing some pioneering work in terms of bringing that kind of, rich end user experience to the user. So we had a, uh, we certainly had a head start there. And they're not just thinking about what does the user experience have to look like or should it look like, but rather what's the process of how we do the engineering itself? How do you do things differently? Like what is, you know, at Microsoft, we had basically, we talked about as user experience frameworks. It's not just about on a particular experience, you thread through it this way. It's about changing the way you do engineering to be have the user experience be foremost and having an engineering system that really looks at that and iterates, that brings in users to get their feedback. It is literally how we build software in the private sector and, and doing that in the commercial sector as well. I, it's incredibly energizing for the team to do that. And so I think we got that head start with VA.gov. We just need to do more of it. And there's an opportunity to take their best practices and drive it across the organization. That's where engineering excellence comes in. Engineering excellence is really all, it's that uh, iterative ongoing process of finding out what's the best way to do things um, and then inculcating that across the entire organization into that engineering system. And I think it, to that point, it's not hard to see how those four goals, how those four uh, visions are tied together and how they interact together. This uh, now, that, So now that you have a sense of where you are after 100 days, you have this vision for digital transformation. We'll put a link to it in the show notes today on thedailyscooppodcast.com. And this uh, vision says, we'll continue to deliver the technical capabilities necessary to implement VA's strategic plan, including far-reaching and highly visible efforts, including. And I'd like to walk through each of these because I, I think they lay out exactly where I would think as an outsider the VA would be headed. The first one is probably the elephant in the room, and it's the electronic health records modernization system. Um, what was your assessment when you came into that? And what do you think are the most important things to do to whatever verb you want to describe, gain, regain, continue, whatever, what momentum you have, Kurt? Well, thanks for asking the question. And it is a very complex program that we are in, I would say, the early stages of. Uh, we've certainly spent the last year plus kind of building the foundation and getting the first three uh, sites moved over. Um, but it's a it's going to be a building process over time. The DoD is about halfway through with their their implementation. As you 
maybe all your uh, listeners don't know, we are moving to a commercial off-the-shelf product uh, built by uh, Cerner. And there's certainly a lot of complexity that comes from using such a COTS product in a new environment. And the thing to emphasize here is it's a, as much about process change as it is about the systems um, that support that. And it's also about adapting this commercial product to the particular environments that we have at the VA. And so I think that's been, you know, it, it's both been a place of some successes. I would actually say the Columbus facility, which we brought on board a week or so ago, has gone quite well. I think we've had learnings that have come from our first implementation of manned grand staff. Um, we appreciate the patience that everybody and the engagement that those teams have had, but it's been a learning process there and we've gotten better. We've stayed there and iteratively improved the situation. But I think what's, what's important here is to have a, uh, one, have a super high degree commitment to the program. Second, it's to have an organization structure and a way of governance and we have an EHRM um, OI organization that really drives uh, a new organization set up that reports to the deputy secretary that has a cross-functional, multifunctional organization that drives that in concert with us on the, on the tech side. To have that governance, we have a governance council as part of that that meets regularly. Um, and we're bringing in great leaders there um, uh, to actually drive the various disciplines. Um, somebody from OIT has joined the, the technical aspect or element of that program. Um, we just brought in a new executive director uh, around the user experience or the, the functional champion, Leslie um, Sophocleus, uh, who's the active executive director of EHM, um, EHRM uh, IO program management office. And she, her function, and she spent 25 years in the military industrial and acquisition space, but she's the person who drives the specifics of the program that everything is coming together. And we're super excited to have her in the role, but it's about getting that governance, right? It's about iteratively um, finding what works and what we need to change. And it's also about working super deeply with Cerner to hold, uh, them accountable for having a high availability, high uptime system. And that's been some of the, the uh, difficult parts of that. We're working very deeply with them to improve those, those aspects. The visibility of Cerner and VA tied together like this is so high profile and yes. you're locked into them. So what does that accountability look like? Ultimately, what do you do to make sure that they do deliver what they say they're going to deliver? That's a great question. The first and foremost is it is a contractual relationship that we have with Cerner, which has responsibilities on their part, including delivering a high reliable system. So you need to make sure that while we're in partnership, we are purchasing a product from them. And there's a responsibility on both on their part to deliver that product. And, and then while you're doing that, it's that duality of, yes, there's this responsibility, and we need to be in a close association with you and working together so that we increase and, and, and maximize the chance of delivering successfully. And so we're doing deep discussions with them about each and every place there's a problem, what the root cause analysis is, what Cerner is doing about that challenge to get us better in the future. So it's this duality of holding the responsibility as, as a product we purchase, while at the same time, 
you know, both of us recognize we we can will and need to get better and 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 driving together to do that. Kurt Del Bene, the chief information officer at the VA. The conversation continues in just a moment. The lineup for the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference next Thursday is loaded now. The conference is happening at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C., and you can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. More with the CIO at the VA, Kurt Del Bene. Sir, I could probably do the whole conversation on the EHR system, and I'm not going to, but I do have a couple more on it. You talked about the learning process from man grand staff. Uh, the military health system, as you uh, mentioned, is about halfway through their transition. The Coast Guard says it's done, and I understand they're completely different organizations in the VA. I get that. And I get that uh, the military health system had a head start and so on. There, there are definitely variables. But are there lessons that you can learn from them be- since the whole point of the system is that for all of these to be interactive, are there the things that you can learn as you move forward to help you avoid some of the bumps that you've experienced and that they experienced? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing to get clear is the system is different than it was when we started, when they started the DOD uh, rollout. And so we naturally benefit from all of, all of that. The second thing we have learned is the necess- necessity to streamline the user experience roles to make sure it's that minimum. In, in a system like Cerner, there are roles like um, patient intake or, you know, the different physicians have different roles. And we need to thin that down to, to as few as, as the system needs. And so that was a learning as well from how the DOD rolled things out. We learned the import, the absolute importance of, of training and make sure we have high degree um, of compliance with the training or participation in the training, I should say. Um, and then we also learned the importance of, uh, of having, having super uh, well uh, informed and knowledgeable people which we call super users, they're with the people as they're they're understanding the system and embracing the system. If they have a question, they essentially can turn their shoulder and say, how do I do this? And having that that great connection with them, I think is another thing that we learned. Uh, And then the final thing I would say is, as I said, a very complicated system between the Cerner piece and, and adapting it to our infrastructure. We learned the need to actually streamline those places of connectivity to things like medical devices to those absolute requirements that we have so that we can simplify our infrastructure as we go along, um, you know, by not having absolutely every different system under the sun be connected to Cerner, but use this as a, a, a time to drive some standardization so that we get some simplification and some leverage that comes from that. Again, these are uh, similar lessons in the commercial sector as well. Um, there are three other systems that uh, you ping in the uh, vision for digital transformation. I'm going to combine them for the purposes of time. Financial management system called IFAMS, uh, financial mm-hmm. management business transformation, uh, human capital management systems, and the defense medical logistics standard support and VA supply chain transformation. Those are really the most basic and important operating systems of any federal agency. Uh, what did you find when you started to look at those? What's what's kind of your base for transforming those systems, Kurt? So the first thing to say is we are a participant in that and an important participant in that, but it is a cross-team effort, uh, certainly in the team in VA called OM that does management of our overall financial um, dealings uh, is a key part of the IFAMS transformation as well. But the first thing I, I would call out, which 
you know, is really important is if you take those systems collectively, they are, as you said, they are the key systems that the VA is running, um, runs their business on. And to have that degree of transformation going on in such a short period of time is really kind of remarkable and something where you better be paying attention along the way. Um, I think that what it really does bring to mind is the importance of stepping back and making sure you understand the entire problem and that you understand the interconnectedness between these different systems. So as we do a financial transformation, for instance, it's connection to our electronic health record system is really important. We talk about supply chain. You mentioned DIMLs, the supply chain system that comes from the DOD that we're looking at. That is connected to the financial systems, systems, which is connected. It actually would do the inventory for medical equipment in each of the VA hospitals. And so the connectedness and making sure that you have a shared plan is super important. The make sure, make sure you have great governance, that you go in a measured pace. I think actually the financial transformation has been going quite well, and it's really sweating the details, understanding exactly what the deployment looks like, going into one, one particular department or agency, getting it, doing a great job there, and then rolling to the next one, taking the learnings that you take from the previous one. These are all things, you know, that the federal government and being great in the federal government, being great in the commercial sector, um, you know, the commercial sector isn't this rosy place where everything goes well. There's a differentiation between IT projects that go well there and IT projects that don't. And there's a lot of similarities. It's like, do you understand everything going on? Do you have clear direction? Are you learning as you go? Uh, etc. Um, my audience, I worry, is throwing things at their speakers because I've had the chief information officer of VA on this long and I haven't asked you about data. And so I want to pivot mm. to that in the few minutes that we have left. Um, this uh, strategy says that VA uh, will build and deploy a plan for a common VA data architecture and strategy treating data as a strategic asset. I imagine that's a phrase that you brought from the private sector, but it's also a phrase that's been in use in the federal government for a number of years now. What does that look like using data as a strategic asset, not from an infrastructure perspective and not from a we're going to get these analytics tools perspective, but to somebody at the front line, somebody that's providing benefits to the to a veteran, somebody that is providing health care to a veteran, somebody that is helping a veteran or his or her family in a cemetery situation. What does that ultimately mean to the to the VA employee on the front lines who isn't an IT practitioner and who isn't a data practitioner? That's a great question. And it, I would obviously go to bits and bytes first. So I appreciate you <laughs> popping it up to the level of what does it really mean? Because I think that's what's key. It means a, a lot of things. It means one, when we, when you interact with one of the VA systems, we know about you. We know, for instance, uh, if you're interacting with us on healthcare, that you might have uh, eligibility for certain benefits, that we look at you as the whole person and that we understand you from a data perspective as that whole person. There's an incredible amount of complexity to actually make that happen um, inside where, you know, and this is the commercial sector has this problem too, of like, you lived in this place and you lived in this place. And by the way, which one do you live in now? And do we have the, the, the definitive record of who you are? Do we have, more importantly, do we have the definitive record in terms of all of your experience with the VA? Do we leverage that data to bring up, you know, you, you've applied for this benefit or you've got this healthcare need. Here's some other things that you might be eligible for. 
at that point in crisis in a, in a veteran's life, do we know each and everything we can about that veteran to help him or her as much as we, we possibly can? These are all critical things of having data are at, the, at the experiential level is really important. If you look at the management level, there's multiple aspects of this. We need the VHA to be able to look at their how they're doing in terms of delivering care and where those opportunities for improvement are. Moving forward, AI in the medical space is going to be absolutely critical. So how do we take the best AI algorithms that exist around diagnosis as, as they evolve? And how do we use the VA data? How do you access that data in a way that it can be used? Same thing in the benefits space. Um, we've actually started looking at how we would automate some claims processing. For instance, the first one we've done is around hypertension. But that requires all the data around that, that particular veteran to be available for us to do that analysis so that we can speed the delivery of care um, to that veteran. And then the final thing I'd say is if you pop up a level, you need to use that data to see how we're doing as an organization, how we're doing in delivering our, our mission to care for our veterans, families, uh, and caregivers, and how do we bring that together so that the secretary and others in the leadership team can look at the places we're doing well and look at the places we're challenged and need to improve. Uh, I'm very grateful for your time today, Kurt. I have one more question for you before I let you go, and it's more existential, philosophical, I guess, than, than tactical. Um, the average political appointee chief information officer serves in government for 18 to 24 months over time, and I'm not implying that you should leave at any particular <laughs> time until you or the president decides so, but... I wonder how much of that, if at all, is in the back of your mind as you're pursuing these goals, that a lot of these things that we've talked about today will take much longer than that, and that at some point in time, you'll have to hand them off to somebody else. And I wonder if that is a consideration that maybe didn't exist when you were at Microsoft and you thought, well, I'll just be here for however long I'm here. It's a great question. And it has been something that I have thought about, although, as you say, I'm hoping to be here for a while. So... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll harken back when, when, you know, the advice I got from a lot of people was focus on three things, figure out those three things you want to accomplish. And I thought to myself, I don't know that I think there are these three things I want to accomplish. I want to make the whole organization or work with the team to make them better so that it exceed, it goes beyond my tenure here. And so I am focused not on those three things. And there are three things. There are 12 things also. I'm focused on how we improve this engineering culture to make it, um, it fantastic. We have an aspiration of being the best in federal IT. And with a we have a sacred mission of delivering to veterans, caregivers, and their families that makes it all the more important that we are. And so if I can get us on that journey and accelerate that journey, I will, regardless of how long I'm here, I will have felt that I've been successful. Is there a way to measure better or will you just know it when you see it? Uh, I hope a lot of people will know it when they see it. It, it is the speed of execution. It is the clarity of mission. It is the clarity of vision. It is the clarity in how our roadmaps connect to our vision. And it's clarity on resource allocation, too. Are we taking every dollar the taxpayers give us, and are we putting it against the highest priority missions? If all that works better, um, you'll know it when you see it. Kurt Delbene, the Chief Information Officer at VA, grateful for your time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You can find a link to the VA Vision for Digital Transformation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps more people find the Daily Scoop podcast. This show is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes every day. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow afternoon with the Chico at the Commerce Department, Jessica Palatka. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.